Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, the world is being transformed before our eyes, and I don't need to tell anybody that. Pretty obvious. Anytime you look at the news, things are changing. And among the areas being dramatically impacted is higher education. However, to be fair, higher education was in need of transformation long before the COVID crisis. Higher costs, limited access, antiquated pedagogy, reliance on part-time labor in the form of adjuncts, and employee overwork all are putting pressure on higher education to change. The question is, change how? Yeah, that, that is a great question. And so in this episode, we're going to bring you a live experience by design episode that's made in conjunction with Mindshare and Missing Link Studios. We're bringing together experts and practitioners across fields to collaborate on the future of higher education. We wanted to see how experts who work inside of and with from the outside, academia and higher education, how do they approach these challenges? So, Gary, take it away. So, we have with us tonight, like I was saying, a wonderful group of people and let me introduce them. So we have President Suzanne Walsh. And president Walsh is the president of Bennett College, which is a historically black college and university, or just historically black college, HBCU, located in North Carolina. And before her stint at Bennett College, which is relatively recent, she was also at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, if you've heard of that before, uh, as a deputy officer, am I correct? Deputy director. If you want to get director, well, we all we, we're all about fancy here, as you can tell. We also have Dr. Elizabeth Medina, who is has a lot of job titles. Actually, she is the vice president for student affairs. She is the chief diversity officer, and if that wasn't enough to occupy her day, she's also the Title IX coordinator at Concordia University. More importantly, for me, she's a sociologist, and sociologists are always valuable to have in the room. Most people just don't know why. And so we have to do the work of trying to explain that to them. We also have Lauren Wallman, who comes from a country, let me check my notes, called Canada. And she is also known as the Learning Pirate. And one of the things that I found out from knowing Lauren recently is that there is actually a science behind learning. And after teaching for 30 years, it's probably a good thing that I just found that out, that there's actually ways of studying how people learn and how we're supposed to teach them. Nobody told me. How was I supposed to know? And she has an extensive background in neuroscience. And then we also have Ken. Hi, Ken. And Ken Gordon is a good friend. He's a principal communication specialist at EPAM Continuum. They do amazing work uh, around uh, innovation and design across a number of industries, including higher, including higher ed. Also, what's interesting about Ken is he has a freshman enrolling in college and going to school this fall. So he's not only a, a chief uh, thought leader, he's also a parent sending a child to school. So hi, Ken. This is all true. Hi, Gary. What's up? How you doing? So the format for tonight is like this. We wanted to have something a little bit irreverent, but knowledgeable. A lot of podcasts, or a lot of, except for our podcast with Adam, and a lot of webinars sound kind of boring because they're often academic and very staid and very formal. We wanted to try to interject some fun into the format by being a little outside the box in terms of our thinking and also to explore some of those hard questions that a lot of webinars just aren't going to explore. And so we're very fortunate to have this distinguished panel and to explore some of these questions and topics. Now, if you have any questions, those watching, there is a comments box that you can find. You can type your question into there and somebody, either Adam or Phil, who you can't see, will feed me those questions. We can also incorporate those questions into our conversation. And just remember, like I tell all my students, there is no dumb question. That's not always true, but it's what we tell them anyway. Well, I mean, we've all been there, yeah. right? 
And I should introduce myself a little bit. My name is Gary David. I'm a sociologist at Bentley University, which is a small business school right outside of Boston. I'm also a consultant. I work in experience design, uh, including learning experience. So looking forward to having the panel. So the first thing I wanted to do is share my screen. Bye, Adam. First thing I wanted to do is share my screen and talk about higher education. And the first topic that I think if we can get that shared, Phil, higher education, it had a good run. So here's a story recently that I really caught my eye. I'd like to get people's comments on. College students sue for refunds amid coronavirus. Now, a lot of schools were really put out, including mine, by having to reimburse for room and board costs, which obviously we weren't Students weren't able to use their rooms, so we can't charge them room and board. But more interestingly is this. Students at the University of Miami have filed a class action lawsuit claiming they have paid for in-person courses at a higher rate, and with online instruction, they aren't getting what they paid for this semester. Students at Drexel University in Pennsylvania have filed a similar suit and asked for tuition refunds. So I want to ask, Lauren, if I can ask you this question. Is that reasonable to ask for a refund given that online learning is an inferior product, given your experience in, in developing and designing learning? Is this something that students have an argument about? Well, I'm not going to claim that, that online learning is inferior. Where we could get a little philosophical is, is what are you actually paying for? Are you paying for a building? Are you paying for a professor? Are you, you're paying for an education. So I think that the narrative really has to come down to that, is where is the value? Where are those dollars that they're requesting? Where is that really should be the narrative, not necessarily give me my money back because I can't stay in dorm, <laughs> you know, because if it's about spending money to spend, you know, to stay in a dorm, um, anyone who spent any given time in a dorm during their college or university days, we know what happens in dorms. <laughs> so for yeah. that, I would say that's, that's probably not a good argument for wanting uh, refunds. Uh, but I think we really need to question is a more intelligent look at that, which is what is it that you're actually requesting and what's the value of, that and, and where is that narrative going? So Ken, on that point, as a parent who I assume recently cut a check <laughs> for his child to be in school, would you be in a situation where if your child could had, had, was exclusively online, would, would you be expecting a discount or is this something that you're not really expecting? You're expecting the same quality of education? Um, I'm hoping for the same quality of education. We'll see. You know, I'm willing to give my university uh, the shot. I, I am not going to go in there um, assuming that I will get the kind of uh, education I had as an undergraduate. Um, but I, uh, to be honest, I think my school is setting things up in the right way. We, I've been to a, a bunch of different webinars about how they plan on delivering the education, and it seems they're doing pretty much everything they can do in this moment to deliver something of quality. What, what are some of the things they're doing that as a parent and as a person who does design work, what are some of the things that they're doing that you find to be most comforting or most on point with what the requirements of the moment are? Well, they're having the freshman uh, class come on campus first, just the freshman. My daughter happens to be a freshman right now. So they're showing how important the freshman experience is, and it really is. Um, they're doing it. They're going to be COVID testing twice a week. They're going to be delivering all the um, lectures um, via distance with some very small groups. So it's. I think they're making the best of the blended learning experience. They're going to be using the big empty rooms as in different ways. And all these things um, seem to be the right thing to do. Dr. Medina, right? Um, or Liz, if I may. Or Dr. Medina. Uh, what, I mean, Concordia is, has, let me fill us in. Does Concordia have a significant portion online? Is this a new model for you? Or is this what you're used to and you've been doing it for a long time? Yes. I mean, that this is uh, such an important piece of the conversation because I think for institutions that are making the pivot, you know, a university like the one um, where I am, who is accustomed to being flexible and nimble and inventive and creative and innovative um, and is not necessarily risk averse, but also has a deep um, seatedness in um, caring for our community um, to guide us that it's been really great for, you know, us to think about how um, the work we've been doing as a university has 
in some ways positioned us to weather this storm, so to speak. And, and you know, and to Lauren and Ken's point, you know, I, I also in student affairs have been um, on a number of um, uh, uh, webcasts with parents and families and new students with these very things in mind and the conversations are very much centered around um, the quality of the experience. How do we make sure that we're delivering, as we as we say, on our promise and and staying aligned with our mission of of, of centering care for people um, and doing it through a modality that we're we're committed to doing. There's lots of behind the scenes technical training. There's lots of creativity on the student experience side that I oversee in terms of how do we create community and connection and enthusiasm um, across the modality. And I think it's that sort of, you know, asset-based thinking rather than deficit um, that's really helping us and other institutions like ours um, that are not as entrenched in the traditions of it must be done this way. So there's got to be. A, I always wonder about this. There's got to be a little bit, maybe just a little bit, of uh, looking at schools, even like mine or more traditional schools that have not really embraced the online learning approach as much as other schools like yours. There's got to be a little bit of satisfaction, maybe just a little bit of watching the rest of us just, you know, just panic and go, how in the world are we going to figure this out while schools like yours are like sitting back, just kind of like, oh, well, you know, um, good luck with that. Is there a, just a little bit? Well, you know, I, as someone who has, has <laughs> had a, a longevity of experience at a variety of institutions, you know, certainly just the, the nature of the circumstance you know, the uncertainties are our challenges, but I think it's the, we, we've talked about having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset in terms of how you approach these life challenges. And I think in no better place than institutions of higher education that are about lifelong learning and growth experiences, both positive and challenging, uh, that we would, we would get to live that out, sort of walk our talk. So, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that there's not some, some trepidation, okay. right. But, but certainly I think, bit. Our, our our community sort of gathering around this is we will we will push through this and not only will we push through it we'll be better because of it and i think one of the points you made which is so great i want to ask president walsh about this this fixed mindset versus a growth mindset people think it's one of these tropes that you know higher education is so liberal in some ways i guess on some measures it is it's also tremendously conservative and resistant to any kind of change whatsoever. And, you know, I've been around higher education now for 25 plus years working in it. I know that you're more recent in higher education coming from Bill and Melinda Gates, as well as other uh, work that you've done. What's it been like to try to get people to adopt a growth mindset and shift from a fixed mindset, especially not because you want to here, because a lot of us, you have to, because if you don't, if you do business as usual in an unusual time, you're going to be caught out um, and not be able, now you're not going to be around very long. Well, I, so the last time I was in higher ed was probably about 20 something years ago. And so sometimes I say it hasn't changed that like the characters are all still the same, but I was at a community college the last time. And so the characters are recognizable to me. Um, the issues are recognizable. It's just 20, you know, now we're in the 21st century. Last time I was in, it was the 20th century. Um, right. But, but I think what's been really interesting, and I talked about this with faculty and staff recently, there are a number of things that I came in and was recommending. And every single time I would recommend something, so I've been in the role, it'll be a year next week or maybe tomorrow even, I don't know, uh, August. Um, and I came into the role and I had suggestions for things. And every single time the reaction was, nope. Nope, impossible. We're not doing it. Nope, that's not us. And then what would happen would be over time, people would sort of think about it. And then they would sort of come back and go, I mean, maybe. Like, may mm, I mean, maybe that thing. And then they would start to kind of like send me articles and email of things that they had read. So they were, they were still thinking about it. And I introduced Slack to Bennett College this year, which oh, like, dear. oh my, I know. But I was like, I can't have an inbox full of just interesting one-off ideas. I was like, we need to share with the world. So anyway, I've been able to watch even then in a more public space, like how these, how these ideas evolve to the point that then almost inevitably in the end, people go, yeah, we could do that, but we could do it in our way. And so one of our colleagues refers to it as Bennettizing things. We can make it, a, you know, we can do it the Bennett way. 
And so I, what I think is interesting in higher education and bringing people along in any change initiative is to say, like, throw out the scary idea, give it time, like keep feeding it, keep working on it, keep coming back and reminding people, let them play with the idea, let them make it better. Um, in terms of, you know, for this, it was both faculty and staff had things that I was challenging them with and they came back and every time was better. So my, you know, if I had said in the beginning of the year, we're all of a sudden going to go completely remote. We're not, nobody right. chooses to come to Bennett either as a student or a faculty or staff member because they want to be online or virtual. If I had given them more warning, I think they would have been like, oh, no, 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 no. But they did it. And so I'm like, mm -hmm. you were skeptical for like two hours because that was all you had. And then look at you now. And so that's right. kind of, I think that just continues to be, um, I think the exciting part about being at Bennett, quite frankly, is like I see that same trajectory. And that to me means we can move on. We can move forward because right. I have evidence that they can do stuff that they thought was impossible. So it makes me think, and maybe Lauren can answer this, what's wrong with the academic brain? You study neuroscience. Ooh. It seems to be defective. That and I'm speaking as an academic, you know, our brains, as, as highly developed as they might be, I've also been trained to be exceptionally narrow and focused and mm -hmm. fixed. So what is wrong with our brain and is the academic brain, is there, is there science on whether it's salvageable or do we just have to, you know, get rid of the academic? No, just okay. give up now, no. Thank you everybody, it's been a great <laughs> yeah. webinar. <laughs> You know, you know, when we revert back to what you were asking, um, Suzanne, about, you know, fixed versus a growth mindset, now we're getting into the territory of behaviors and habits. And when we look at the institution of education, when we look at, you know, how it evolved, did it evolve, it's 120 years roughly of the same. So, you know, even myself, if I were to, you know, I, I haven't been in the classroom for about 20 years now, I know if I went back into the classroom, it would not look much different. And it's because of these habits and these behaviors and these beliefs that mostly all of us have experienced through our educational careers that we then, again, we grew up, but we, we took those same beliefs and patterns and habits and behaviors. And those are incredibly challenging to, to change in an adult brain. You know, essentially past the age of about 35, your beliefs and behaviors are, they've got very strong pathways in there. So we talk sometimes about unlearning and then relearning, um, but you really do have to go in and, and practice and rehearse and in order to, you know, start a new belief or behavior. But again, 120 years roughly of doing the same thing, it's a, it's a big battle. So it's no surprise to me, similar to the conversations that I'm sure Liz and Suzanne and kind of had and yourself with, um, with academics, it's when you've been doing something for the, you know, like a smoker, when you've been doing something for that long, um, it is very challenging because the brain instantly wants to revert back to what's comfortable and what's safe and what's familiar. And that's why learning right. in itself, what I think people don't recognize, learning is hard. It, it, it's not meant to be very easy. It's meant to challenge us and to push us out of our comfort zones because that's the way that this actually, you know, biologically changes. So we got the biological perspective, uh, Dr. Medina, the sociological perspective. We got to balance things out here, go from the brain to the Absolutely. social. So thoughts about uh, what we're talking about, yeah. why academics are irredeemable or something related to that topic. Well, as someone who considers, still considers themselves a practitioner, scholar, I, I, I think I think we're we're salvageable, at, you know, at the least. Um, I, but I do think a really good point, you know, as my fellow sociologist, you can appreciate some of what Lauren said resonated as well as a, as part of cycle of socialization, right? Like so, when you think of institutionalized ways of being, societies, higher education or the system of education, I, I can't think of you know, too many more that are really throughout our entire life cycle. Um, and, and I was just having this conversation in the context of uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but it applies here as well, which is there's also the cycle of liberation <laughs> and thinking about yeah. how do we begin to learn, as, as Lauren pointed out, but also unlearn <laughs> some some behaviors and ways of being and thinking and entrenchment and 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 we like to label it tradition and i appreciate so much what president walsh has had to say because we too say we say the concordia way right and and there are some really great pieces of that and some pieces that 
in, in a positive way are entrenched in our legacy and history. Um, and then there are some things that we also recognize that are no longer a part of who we are today and who we aspire to be. And that's where that those I think those opportunities to 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 liberate ourselves from these things that are holding us back from being innovative, creative, um, and and continuing to learn are important. So that's my best sociological perspective on that. I think that works, Ken. I can I can Gary. Can I just jump in here for a second? Go ahead, Ken. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. I I think if you just you think about the the labor pool on these college campuses, right? And you have people who have jobs for life. The I idea of so. that tenured professors, where do you see that in any other, well, hopefully you have your tenure down, but you think about that and that kind of sort of un, unyielding um, solidity, these people who cannot be fired. And then you have all the adjuncts who are being vastly exploited, you know, who are really starting to rise up. It, you know, it's something that, that schools have to figure out really what's, how are they going to treat the educators on their campuses? And I think, it, we're we're in for reckoning. We're seeing it now, and it's it's indicative of sort of um, where we're stuck, and where there's going to be a huge clash coming up. And we have to think about that in a better, more realistic and holistic way. I think. I'm glad you raised but that think, because. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I I think it's um, it's also figuring out who those faculty champions are because I get nervous right. when we're just like the faculty, because it's not a monolith, right? And so I think that there are some incredible talent. And then there's also folks that you're like, oh, oh, Lord. But but if you can find those folks who are ready and excited about this opportunity, there are people that you wouldn't expect who are embracing this moment. That's, that's where I'm putting my, I'm putting more of my energy into who's ready Who's taking, who's like, oh yeah, did you say we're doing something crazy? I'm in. Like who's right. who's on that? And I don't really pay attention to those who are like, I don't want to do it because I can't drag them along. This is, if, if you can't be moved by this moment in time, there's nothing that's going to move you. But for those who are ready to be moved, they are diving in and they are doing, they're doing tremendous work. But I... I just want, I want to kind of get the balance because otherwise I get, it would be depressing. And there would, then, then we would have to say higher ed is dead. Like if there's nobody who's willing to come along. Well, I think, you know, part of this, and it's going to get me to my next slide as well. This is what I kind of bristle when people talk about student experience, because the student is part of the equation. The learning experience from a person to the system's design, the learning experience is more of a broader ecosystem that needs to be integrated, which includes faculty, staff, students, parents, business, alumni, community, et cetera, and how that all comes together. And when we think about the faculty, quote unquote, it does bring me to this slide. And, and Phil, if you could show the slide for me, because this is one of the questions I think is being raised uh, increasingly, the right not to work, right? This idea that faculty members concerned about health and safety want to say in a want to say in the conditions under which they'll be working if they are expected to teach in person next fall. And teaching online for another semester is so far outside many professors' original job descriptions that it is nearly an, as unpalatable to some as being shut in a room with students. Even so, many professors say they prefer a remote term or even a delayed academic year to teaching face-to-face again too soon. So it does raise this question about what are faculty's rights, knowing that, as Ken has pointed out, some of us, not all of us, some of us have tenure. Some are trying to perform to tenure. So uh, people who are tenure track, what's the coercion and the power differential about when you're asking for volunteers to teach uh, on campus, do they feel put upon that they need to do it for their jobs? And academics as well, especially on the arts and sciences and liberal arts side, because I know in business, some, a lot of the adjuncts actually have full-time jobs, at least in my school. They aren't dependent upon the academic income versus professional adjuncts, which you tend to find more arts and sciences and uh, humanity. So Dr. Medina, about this question, how's your campus dealing with some of these larger questions uh, about faculty not being sure if they want to work on campus or having some selection and say in, in, their, in their working modality? 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's an excellent question. And I just I have to say that your your commentary on the learning experience just really opened up my eyes in this moment. I, I think I've been articulating something in the vein of that, but didn't have the language because it's always about the faculty, the staff, the students, our entire community, right? Which is centered in an academic pursuit for for students but it's not absent of parents and families and all of the things that you've just talked about. So I really appreciate that point as well. Um, but I think what you're talking about has really spoken to me from um, my lens most currently as chief diversity officer, because I've been talking a lot about the diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly the equity pieces of that conversation. Um, and for a campus that, you know, is really working towards a true actionable commitment <laughs> to that work, it's about having those tough conversations, just like you talked about, which, what are the differentials, right, for a senior faculty member or an adjunct or a newer um, faculty hire, right? Those realities are very different. Um, what does that look like across other forms of identity, right? And so one of the things that, you know, I've been really pleased with is that we are, we are really talking through having those difficult dialogues and trying to not retrofit. Um, so I keep reminding people the difference between equity and equality, right? And it's like, it's not right. one, one, one size fits all, right? But so we have to really create opportunities to hear directly from people about their individual lived experiences and how we can support and facilitate their success as they support the success of our students in the classroom. And so that's my long winded way of saying, you know, we've had those intentional conversations and, and to the degrees humanly possible also because of our identity as an institution, we've been able to say, we will do everything we can to support your safety, health and well-being, and make this, you know, a good teaching and learning experience. Um, and I realize that that is not the case at all institutions across higher ed. So I certainly don't take right. it for granted. And it's not an easy thing to do. It, you know, it would be easier to sort of a, across the board say, this is what we're doing or not doing versus let's case by case, situation by situation, um, you know, nuance it um, so that people feel fully supported and empowered and, and have the tools they need. So um, I'm really encouraged by us as an institution um, being able to do that. But I also know um, it doesn't come without a certain amount of commitment and hard work um, to really do that and do it well. So President Walsh, I also know that you on this point about making decisions that your school was one of the first, I, you know, in our pre-production meeting, one of the first to say, no, we're just going to be fully online in the fall. We're not going to risk it. Uh, what was that experience like of of being out there while so many other schools were kind of playing the game of, we're not going to quite say it yet because we still want people, and I, and I know that, I'm mean, not criticism, right? We don't want people to pull their deposits and go for a cheaper alternative. We want to kind of keep talking about being on campus as if some of it's going to be normal. You were out there. So what was that, what was that experience like being so far out in front? Well our whole decision was grounded in public health. And so it's not that, I mean, on in some level, it's not that hard. If you say we're prioritizing the health and well-being of our students, faculty, and staff, then that's what we're doing. And, and that has risks. I mean, it has risks for lower enrollment. It has risks for cutting into your um, finances as an independent college, but I'm not going to risk people's lives. I mean, that's just point blank, that, that's the starting point. So it doesn't make it that difficult. I think what makes it difficult is you have to be then able to say, and we're going to keep going based on that decision. Like we're going to keep going. We're going to keep making sure that our faculty have the training that they need this summer. We did pulse surveys of our students, faculty, and staff. You know, our students and our faculty both were like, that last semester was not, it wasn't amazing. You know, like we, we went remote and everybody is in agreement. And so the faculty have committed and they've been in um, in training this summer and they're continuing to to uh, receive training as they're preparing their new courses. So I think as long as we make a commitment and then say, and we're going to support you to be successful. So we have a set of things we're doing for faculty and staff and we have a set of things we're doing for students to help students to be more successful in this environment as well. Once we could make all of those decisions, I think that made it a lot easier. But it's in the end, it was it, it, it wasn't simple but it was right. just the, the ethical and moral thing to do, given our student population. Our student population 
and our faculty and staff, it's very specific. You know, it's women of color make up um, a majority of our faculty and staff, not, not only do they make up our students. So from that sense, hey, I think- I'm glad you mentioned that. Because I think, and maybe with at Concordia, it's the same thing. A lot of schools talk about a value proposition. You, you all have a values proposition, that there are values that drive people's commitment to the institution, where I think a lot of schools, can't speak for all of them, obviously, there's a lot out there, it's much more transactional. It's we want to treat you as a customer and show you the value proposition and even the, you come here, we have like, you know, a splash park and sushi and everything else, and you'll get a job without the larger values proposition, which I think you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, made your decision a little bit safer and easier because people who wanted to come to Bennett wanted to come there because they believed in the institution. I think that's right. I mean, I, um, we spent a lot of time, um, like drip feeding information all semester. Whereas it was like a lot of like stage whispers. We may not be back in the fall. <laughs> like just like it was just period. You know, you would hear if, if they saw me do an interview, if our students, faculty or staff saw me do an interview, they would hear me because I was thinking out loud because I was looking at the data um, consistently. And so I think part of it too, I love this phrase and I will be using it values proposition. <laughs> um, you know, once we said that health is number one um, and people understood that black women's health is a very important topic. It's a, it's a topic that doesn't get a lot of discussion. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It doesn't get prioritized. So I think you're exactly right that that, that was part of what um, really was very helpful. And the fact that we were very clear the whole time we posted on our website, right. we sent out emails to everybody to say, here's the decision criteria that we will be using in our discussions with the board. And it's ultimately a board decision. Um, I wanted to say one other thing about the students and you know how we think about our students. I had really strong feedback from one of our students about, you know, the college really only pays attention to, we have fresh women, you know, to fresh women. Like you, it's the recruitment of them. That's all you celebrate. That's all the college cares about. That was a really poignant and actually like a really uh, hurtful. Like she wasn't trying to hurt me, but like it hurt to hear that feedback because her point was those of us who are upper class women, nobody's like, you don't get excited to find out we're coming back. And so we, right. we took that very really? seriously. And, and we are trying to not just celebrate fresh women, but celebrate all of our classes this year coming back. Cause we are excited to see them. They, they are buying into right. our values, as you said, um, and we need right. to be able to say we're celebrating that as opposed to just getting excited about the new students. So knowing the audience and delivering the experiences to the audience, experience design always comes back to experience design. And I want to share a screen. I'm really interested in getting everyone's perspective, especially you, Lauren and Ken, on, on this slide. Because it really comes down, and if people have questions, feel free to ask your questions in the chat in the comment box. Will traditional colleges and universities become obsolete? This was in Smithsonian Magazine. And one of the key points to call out of this is lack of student demand is already closing 800 out of roughly 10,000 engineering colleges in India. And online learning has put as many as half the colleges and universities in the US at risk of shutting down in the next couple decades as remote students get comparable educations over the internet without living on campus or taking classes in person. Unless universities move quickly to transform themselves into educational institutions for technology-assisted future, they risk becoming obsolete. So, Lauren, is it a comparable education over the internet? And what what is the impact? I mean, it's not quite neuroscience, but what would be the psychological impact? As I told people, when they asked about you know, the relevance of higher ed, I said, well, where do you want your 18-year-olds to go once they graduate high school? They got to go someplace. Do you want them just to kind of live at home and eat, your, eat boxes of cereal on the couch all day until they can find a job? Ken's saying no. Ken's saying no. He, does not, he does not want that. That's one parent who's saying no. <laughs> go, I want them to go away. So, Lauren, on this point, comparable education, um, schools shutting down, will we become obsolete? Or what, what, what would have to be done for us to become obsolete technologically? So when I think about my, uh, my university experience 
and sitting in a lecture hall with 300 other students for three hours in a psych course. Um, I could have been anywhere. I could have cloaked. Uh, my eyes probably were. As a matter of fact, for those lectures, <laughs> I was someplace else because I never attended one large lecture for my Psych 100. Um, so while you were there, good for you. I actually literally was someplace else, not paying attention. <laughs> right. So, you know, if we, I think for me, it's, are we seeing, uh, are we seeing an influx of um, virtual, virtual reality campuses? Yes. Yes, we are. Are they giving a secondary option for a either campuses that have decided to to not bring students back, but still want to engage them in a social experience, which is definitely part of learning. And I think that's part of the excitement of being a new student in college or university is is going and meeting and and you know having that social experience as well. But can we please bring the narrative back to the learning? You are there to learn. You are there to acquire skills and behaviors and knowledge. And yes, the physical environment supports all of that. There, there's absolutely no doubt. But I think from early, uh, early case studies right now, from companies who are now successfully bringing, maybe not an entire, we haven't seen an entire semester. We haven't seen what that looks like in a virtual, right. in a virtual campus, but we are seeing great you know, great moves towards at least maintaining a social environment in a virtual space. Do I think that's going to be, you know, are we going to be living like the Jetsons? Or are we going to be driving our, you know, our, our floating cars in the airs, you know, to, to, you know, school? Probably not. It's, but I think if we don't focus on really what's important here, we're going to miss this opportunity in, in 100%. So is it about a virtual reality, augmented reality being on campus? No. Can we please focus on, the opportunities to increase our abilities to teach our students, first of all, immensely important skills, um, being able to self-regulate, understanding how they learn, monitoring their own learning so that they can actually take more out of the experience right. of what they're learning. And then from the opposite side of it, from those who are providing the education, can we upskill our educators? Um, and of course, I'm going to advocate for the science as always, but there is a science right. to learning. And there is a way to more effectively design learning, not just lesson plan, but design learning where it will actually create a whole new experience just by changing that one component. Right. So that's, that's my take I on mean, it. Well, it's, I want to get the design question to Ken, but I'm old enough, right, unfortunately, <laughs> to remember Second Life. Remember Second Life? Remember the idea of Second Life? Where we were all, you know, you could go there. I remember a friend of mine was working for a company. I went to his house one night. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm interviewing a prospective employee in Second Life. I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Stores were setting up mock displays of clothing racks in Second Life. Second Life was going to be this other place. I'm surprised we haven't had a resurgence of Second Life with college campuses, right? This idea of, ah, you don't need a well, physical, you're just going to go in Second Life. So, Glenn, does that? It's Animal, animal <laughs> Crossing, too. In my, Minecraft, Bennett College. You, I mean, in our, in our pre-meetings, uh, President Walsh said that Bennett was a cross between Wakanda and Hogwarts. So we, we got to get on that. We got to get on that uh, Minecraft Bennett campus so people can go and, um, you know, whatever my kids do on Minecraft. So, Ken, designing the future of higher education. I know EPAM Continuum has recently come out with a wonderful read on some... Uh, pushing the boundaries ideas of designing things. I know you've had other engagements with other universities. So thoughts on the prospects of redesigning things as Lauren was talking about to really dramatically change the nature of what we think we're supposed to do and how we do it. Yeah, man, there's so many great assets that colleges have developed over the years. There's so many things that are there and so many things that they're added into the experience that what we really need to do is take a whole... Um, holistic look at what the experience is. What can we do best online? What can we do best person to person? What are the functions of the different kinds of interactions we have on campus? And really think about redesigning it from every single part of it. It requires a lot of work because as we've talked about, this experience hasn't changed much in over a hundred years. So we've developed things that can be used and it's, it's the idea of having that sort of um, uh, the, that abundance mindset and saying, wow, we've got all these great things here. This is the way it was. What can we, what can we, what can we, like Lego bricks, you know, how can we rearrange it to make it better? Right. And I think that's going to require a, a strong will on the part of the schools to do that. Willingness to say, yeah, we've got to change it. 
and a willingness on the students to say we we'll try something new, and willingness on the parents to wait a little bit while these schools figure it out to see if they can right. actually deliver on the value that goes to the cost of what the education is, right? That value to cost ratio yeah. is a hard thing to calculate. And anybody, a really enlightened parent, student, administrator, teacher understands that this fall is, is a prototype. We're figuring it out now. We're trying things out. The really smart schools will realize that they have to prototype iteratively. And as the semester goes along, do what Professor, Professor President Walsh is doing, which is she takes in the input. She gets what they're saying to her and redesigns on the fly. I think that's right. a huge thing that a lot of organizations and institutions aren't comfortable or used to doing. And I think that's what's going to have to happen now, immediately going forward and fast. Can I add something to that, please? Absolutely, Lauren. We got some questions coming in too, but go ahead, please. Just to, I just want to quickly tag on to what Ken was saying is that in this in this new sort of era and in this opportunity to re redesign, I think that's that's something that that really should be focused on. I had plenty of interactions with a lot of uh, colleges, universities, um, K through twelves here, and one of the biggest faults that I saw over the last few months was that they were purchasing, first of all, they were purchasing texts that they didn't know how to effectively design or use. So they wasted sometimes upwards of millions of dollars of, of money to only then take what was already in a lecture format and throw it up on a video, put their TAs and say, here's some, you know, meet your TA. It was the exact thing, but online and it does right. not transfer effectively. It wasn't necessarily working well in the classroom. It's not going to work well as far as tangible, retrievable learning. Um, so I think to Ken's point, we've got, we can move and we can be agile, but learn. I think we've got to really learn how to learn again. That's number one. And then how to effectively design for it and not just jump the gun and buy things and waste. You're going to blow your budgets and, and you're stuck with the technology that all you can do is do the exact same thing that we've always for the last, for the next hundred years, we'll do it all over right. again. One of the great things is that as I get to the questions that are coming in, something that's been referenced in, in terms of assets building, right? And there's a great approach by a gentleman named John McKnight, um, who's a community organizer called Assets-Based Community Development. Um, and I, I actually try to do it in, in organizations. I call it Assets-Based Community Development for the enterprise, ABCDE. But this idea of rather than taking a needs-based approach, which looks at the deficits, what assets do you have? What Lego pieces, like Ken referred to, exist? And what can you build? And guess what, folks? This is the old school Lego set without the instructions. You have to use your imagination. We're in uncharted waters. Don't try to create the Millennium Falcon uh, with the instructions. Throw those instructions away and just figure out what makes sense for the context you're in. So some questions we have coming in. The first question, what opportunities are opened up with online learning that would be difficult to replicate in person. Anybody like to take a stab at this? What opportunities are opened up with online learning that would be difficult to replicate in person? I'll take the Lauren. first shot. Um, sure. And I, I should caveat this, obviously, as a, as, a, as a learning designer, that's the sort of the lens that I, I look at this through. So what I find really, um, really amazing about taking some learning online, especially because we also have to keep in consideration the generation that is now coming into school, they grew up with technology and this is the way that they communicate. So there are opportunities to leverage. So platforms, you know, depending on what you have available to you, you can actually integrate uh, Slack like, like Suzanne had, or you can integrate Twitter feeds. Um, you know, I had, a, I heard a wonderful story from a professor who was actually in class and recognized that his, his students were just kind of in la la land and got onto Twitter himself to address his students while they were in class. <laughs> so, <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, that kind of social engagement and the level of social engagement that you can get from social media platforms and social platforms, you can't replicate that in person. So I say, Within right. a within a very strategically and intentionally designed way, you can actually leverage them. And I, I will that. just throw on top of that this idea of sort of network learning. 
right? This idea, I've always encouraged my students and my colleagues to say, if you were reading a book and you have a question for the author, what you want to do is jump on Twitter and throw that question at them. Don't write in the margin. You are able to choose your teachers now because of our connectivity in a way that we never could have done before. And I personally, I, I have experienced this numerous times where I went from being a reader to being a an interlocutor to being a buddy to being a co-contributor. And I, I encourage everybody who's serious about learning to think about that path because this is really how we get um, become lifetime and global learners, right? Is making the use of these networks that are available to us uh, in, in, in the right and intentional way. I also think there's an That's opportunity great. if you use it effectively and you have the right resources, you can, you can more effectively personalize that online experience because there are ways that I think everybody tries to do that live, but it's another thing to be able to have some of that behind the scenes data that you can grab um, when you're, when you're in a virtual environment. And I think that's the piece that it's the technology helps to bolster. It doesn't replace, but I think it helps to bolster that right. personalized experience. There's a question for uh, Dr. Medina. I think you're given the number of hats you wear. I think this is a good question for you because you, you you have a great hat collection. In what specific areas do you see the most curiosity or energy to do things differently on campus? Examples: student support, career connectedness, etc. What problems are your stakeholders optimistic about solving in different ways than in the past? So I think going back to this, a lot of times we talk about universities. We only talk about faculty as if we're the only ones that exist. Because let me assure you, we think we're the only ones that exist. But as we know, there happen to be other people on campus doing work too. I don't know what it is, I never talked to them, but people tell me they're around. So Dr. Medina, what in what areas of your organization are people most excited and have the most curiosity? Yeah. No, I love that because I mean, sort of the, the, the subtitle to our talk, you know, for me as a, a student services or student affairs or, you know, not primarily academic focused is, you know, is student <laughs> affairs dead, <laughs> you know, is, are the, are, are the co-curricular things like in a time like this, they really kind of come into question a little bit, right? Um, which I, I actually see as a call to action, right? So um, I was actually literally thinking about um, the ways that this has shown up, even in conversations I had today about um, our, you know, theater productions, like those are going to be done virtually in some really cool ways. Um, so it's it's not going to be the black box theater with the spotlights as we remember them, but it's going to be these interactive monologues or how our service learning program has created um, a format for how do you engage an understanding of service learning and nonprofits and, and the model that we use for that, the so what, so what, now what in a, in a virtual space that builds an appreciation for service learning, um, you know, from that place. Um, we've also, of course, in student services, we're thinking about, you know, our orientation. So we talked about the first year student experience and how do you, um, our goals are to overarching is we want to make sure that those students and families leave conversations with us. I was about yeah. to say campus, but in this case, conversations with us, 100% convinced that they made the right decision, right? And we want to build community and we want to strengthen commitment and we just want to get them excited and feeling like tornadoes, right? And so like looking at that, but also thinking about how do we do some of our bigger marquee campus events? Like we, we have a, a campus-wide talent show, like that's a thing in student affairs and student activities. Um, we're gonna do that virtually this year. And, and I only know, I'm only excited because I recently was a part of a musical ensemble award ceremony through um, a, a local organization um, that I serve on the board for. And it was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. I was like, I, I can't imagine what it looked like in person, but this is fabulous. And so um, I see it, the short, the long answer is that <laughs> I see it coming from every right. facet of campus and, and, and places you wouldn't even necessarily, you know, inherently think would jump to it with enthusiasm. You know, again, as a faith-based institution, we're looking at how our campus worship happens 
in a virtual way that still celebrates mm-hmm. the spirit of that. So um, I I think it's, um, again, you know, I don't want to belabor the mindset. I really think y'all have made some valuable points about the learning process and about, you know, the idea of redesigning an experience um, that's not less than. Right. You know, that's really, and, and one thing I will add um, is what we're tracking is uh, everything that we are able to curate out of this experience that we are going to retain because right. it is, it has become, it's a realization that this is valuable within and beyond a pandemic. And so to me, as you can see, I kind of get excited talking about it because um, I think those of us who are reared in higher education, particularly in, in, in the student support and services side of things are used to showing up for students um, to serve and support in crisis. But what, and not that we're not doing that, but we're really getting to think about is how do we, how do we make sure that students get the value of this experience in a way that's, that's not perceived and not actually less than. So. Great. And I have one more question for for, uh, President Walsh, but I will say that your answer triggered me a little bit, reminded me of the time that my oldest daughter announced to me, her career goal was to make money performing online. I didn't know how I was supposed to take that. I think she was talking about on YouTube. I wasn't sure because I just kind of walked out of the room and didn't want to think about what that meant. But I appreciate the innovation and the, um, the leaning into the technology. President Walsh, last question for you as we come up against the hour. What types of specific training, what types of training or specific training have your faculty found to be most helpful to prepare them to be in this online environment? Mm -hmm. What's been working well for them? We don't know yet. So we have three different opportunities right now. um, Cengage, we're using Cengage for all of our textbooks. So Cengage is working with faculty now to um, redo their syllabi. The other thing I didn't say is We've gone to mini-mesters, effectively block schedule um, for this semester and moving forward. And so there's a lot of adjustments that faculty are making. So anyway, Cengage is helping faculty. Um, There's also some work that we're doing through um, UNCF, of which we're a member. They are offering training for faculty through the Gardner Institute. And then the third is AQ, which is the Association for College and University Educators. And so um, we have three different things and AQ will actually continue into the semester. So some of those were just summer. AQ will continue with mentoring and coaching faculty through the semester because that's really important. Just like, like Lauren was talking about learning, you don't just learn like in the eight hour workshop and then you're done, but how do right. we support faculty in an ongoing way? So summer isn't enough. We're, we're going to continue into the semester. And we'll, we can report I, I, back. I don't, know what they're going to, I don't know what's going to be the most right. um, important or impactful. I, I will say that one of the things that's been most interesting to me is how many faculty, at least at my school, Bentley University, have been engaged in online trainings have been, over the summer, right? And the whole, the whole trope of, you know, professors don't work, teachers don't work in the summer. Let me assure you, there always is a lot of work there's even more work now. And one of the things I should add that our school has done, I'm sure other schools have, have joined in on this, is frozen the tenure clock for a lot of junior faculty, knowing that they are going to be in a situation of having to do this, this transformation. I should also add, we didn't get to this, unfortunately. There's a lot to talk about in an hour. How this moment is impacting uh, female professors whose childcare responsibilities tend to uh, take a lot of time. And I've heard some reports, I, haven't, I can't speak to it exactly, but the number of article submissions to journals by w- women uh, scholars is down compared to male scholars. So there's a lot of impacts. There's a lot to untangle. And we only got into a little bit. But luckily, for everybody who is online and interested in this topic, we can keep the conversation going at Mindshare. Uh, there are questions we didn't get to. I apologize. I wish we had more time. If there's interest, we might go for a round two. You never know, folks. Um, if we can talk our panel into it, be happy to do so. So if you want to continue the conversation, by all means, go to Mindshare, put down your ideas. Maybe we can talk to the folks here uh, to, to corresponding. Everybody on the panel has a LinkedIn account, is active on Twitter. By all means, reach out to them. We'll include all of their handles in the notes for the show. Uh, We really appreciate all the questions we received. We also appreciate the human 
Science Task Force for allowing this to happen. We also appreciate Missing Link Studios, this AnthroLife podcast, as well as Experience by Design podcast, my podcast with Adam Gamwell, which you can find everywhere that you find podcasts. So on behalf of all the sponsors, I want to thank President Walsh, Dr. Medina, the Learning Pirate, Lauren Waldman, and Ken. I want to thank Ken as well. Definitely go to EPAM Continuum. They got some brilliant stuff, especially Ken's Netflix model is genius. A lot of fodder there to explore and a lot of potential. So really quick, final thoughts, President Walsh, you're the doctor, hire it as a patient. What status, what is the status of the patient right now? We'll go around the room. What? What is the status? I love the question. Code? Are we calling code or are they getting better or are they all healed? Where are we at? Um, I think we're at a rehabilitation center. We're getting some training. We're getting some stretching in. You know, there's some healing. There's going to be some spiritual. There may be like some yoga. We're at, A cleanse. Yeah. Maybe a cleansing we're, diet. We need a cleanse. cleanse. I mean, let's, let's go all the way. A hyaluronic. Gluten-free diet. I mean, it's going to be. But I think. Right. But it is like I really do think we are on. I love that question. But I really do think we are um, uh, at some sort of like spa recovering um, and getting in our. Yeah, just we're getting we're getting ready for the next thing. Yeah. Cleansed. Dr. Medina, where are we at? How's the patient doing? You know, as a resident vegan, I was like, yeah, we're definitely going to the plant-based lifestyle at this point. <laughs> We've binged on the bar Texas barbecue for too long. Uh, you know, I did think of a, trans a transfusion. We're getting some fresh fresh blood fresh infused blood? in us, like right? Or, or maybe we're getting a nice a nice shock to the chest, kind of get us, you know, back up and thinking about things. Kind of serious, more serious than yoga. Think, okay. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely, yeah, I love those kind of visuals and metaphors for things. So I love this question. But at the end of the day, what I really think is um, higher ed is not dead. <laughs> it is not dead. It is evolving. It is getting to a place where it is beginning to recognize that um, to survive and thrive, um, it must evolve. And some institutions are different. They're a little further along that path than others. But I think we're heading in the right direction. I'm hopeful as a lifelong higher education uh, professional, <laughs> that that um, our values proposition as higher ed is still one that is extremely worthwhile because it is entrenched in learning um, and creating global citizenship. I'm optimistic. And Lauren, is the, is, what's the extent of our brain damage? You're the neuroscience person. How brain damage is higher education? Is it is it just is it, can we rehabilitate it? What what's the prognosis? I think that if, I, if, if we take this opportunity right now in this moment, the opportunity that we have to change our behaviors, to change our habits, to change our patterns and become more aware, we can really see a significant change in the way that we learn, in the way that we design learning, in the way that we approach um, our, our, our environments of learning. But it's now do it now, or I can tell you, I, I can tell you exactly, you know, shake your crystal ball, grab your magic eight ball. It's going to be the exact same. The future is going to be the present if we don't make it the changes now. So right. last words, Dr. Ken, there you go. Right from the brain. The patient says, I'm not a patient. I'm a person, man. And it says, I think we should all go downstairs, grab a beer, get some Lego bricks and start playing. They need to play. They want to play. Play. The ones who are going to survive, going to thrive, are the players. And I think we got to encourage these institutions to learn how to play their Can't way. Can't say any better, better than future. that, so I won't. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. Stay tuned for more conversation from the Human Science Task Force on this topic, along with many others. Remember to go to Mindshare to stay engaged in this conversation around this very important topic. Have a great night and a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. Bye. We want to thank all the participants in the Higher Education is Dead, Long Live Higher Education panel. We had a lot of fun putting it on. It was a lot of work and all of the participants are extremely busy. So we really appreciate everyone's insights and sharing and being willing to have fun with the content. It was, it was a lot of fun to do and we hope you enjoyed it as well. So what are your ideas to help transform higher education? Is the model of higher education that we know today completely dead? What is the future of higher education? Where does it need to go? What do we need to do to redeem higher education for 
the upcoming century and upcoming generations. Let us know your perspectives on educational and learning experiences at our Experience by Design LinkedIn page and contribute your thoughts. And you can also communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That's the experience, letter X, design.com. We'd love to hear from you and we enjoy having your feedback. It gives us a lot of great insight of what we can bring to future episodes and just lets us know what makes you tick. Also, we're really excited to celebrate the fact that we have hit over 2,000 downloads. So, yeah, right? Happy sound effects. Yay. Um, so just thanks, everybody, for listening and, and contributing to the show. It's been it's been a great journey so far. And so we are really excited and we appreciate your support and you taking the time and the journey with us. We look forward to the next 2,000 and beyond. So we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>